Al-Jazeera podcast. Xi Jinping is formally appointed for a third term as China's president. All-powerful at home, he faces big challenges elsewhere up against the US and a more polarized world. So what will be the impact of Xi's third term in China and abroad? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan. This is the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests for today's discussion. Andy Mock is a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. He joins us via Skype from Beijing. Uh, in Washington, D.C. is Shirley Yu. She's a senior fellow with the Ash Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. And via Skype from Hamburg is Adrian Geigers. He's co-author of the book Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World. A, welcome to, uh, a warm welcome to all of you. Adrian, let's start with you. The Most Powerful Man in the World. I thought that moniker belonged uh, to the US president. Why did you give your book that title? Is he the, mo- the world's most powerful man? Yes, he absolutely is the world's most powerful man. And the events today have confirmed this because he has such a power now in China first, like nobody since Mao Zedong. But more important, China is economically so powerful nowadays that, uh, which is different from the Mao time, of course, which makes him really the most powerful man. Also, because, I mean, the president of the United States, who was considered to be the most powerful person in the past, Uh, The U.S. are so divided politically. We don't know what uh, happens after the first term of Joe Biden. Yes, uh, I'm absolutely uh, sure Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world. Shirley, um, confirmation of his third term was widely expected. To what extent, though, uh, are the next few days more important uh, with the appointment of of a new premier and, and various other ministers? Absolutely. Uh, This is uh, essentially a continuum of uh, the Chinese uh, policy directions that we have seen uh, since 2022. But uh, more broadly, uh, since uh, the onset of the trade war in 2018, so we have seen a a series of uh, government reforms. We see re-centralization of power from the bureaucracy, the government side, to the party side, and the restructuring of power from the ministerial level up to the cabinet level and even up to Uh, Mr. Xi himself, but also uh, in this congressional session and uh, uh, into the next five years, we're going to continue to see the state sector playing a pillaring role within the Chinese economy. The state sector permeates through all Chinese uh, private sectors. And and so uh, Mr. Li Qiang, uh, as the incoming premier, most likely uh, has a huge job uh, on his shoulder and he's going to steer uh, the Chinese economy towards uh, possibly a new direction today faced with mounting domestic and international challenges. Andy, as Shirley said there, Li, Li Chang is widely expected to replace the, the outgoing Premier uh, Li Keqiang. What's, what's his relationship with President Xi? How will things differ with him in the role compared to his predecessor? Well, I think we can expect some significant differences. One, of course, because there's a new person in the job, but also, as Shirley alluded to, there are some important structural reforms going on as well, not only within the government, 
uh, to emphasize science and technology, uh, intellectual property protection, data as a factor of production. But also, uh, there's a greater integration between the party and the government. So for those two reasons, I think we can expect uh, some meaningful changes uh, in the role of the premier, in the role of the state council, and the role of the government. But we also have to recognize, too, that again, because of the leading role of the CPC, that uh, Li Tiang is also number two uh, after Xi Jinping on the uh, Politburo Standing Committee, which is the highest uh, level of leadership at the party. So I think for these reasons, and of course, his uh, long, decades-long close relationship, uh, working very closely with C, uh, could mean that uh, there is much greater efficiency and effectiveness uh, going forward. Adrian, would you agree with that? What is it about uh, Li Chang uh, that will be different uh, as far as President Xi is concerned from, uh, from Li Keqiang? I mean, we have to see what he has done in the past. I mean, as already mentioned, he always was very close to Xi Jinping. That might might be an advantage for him to do something uh, more independently. But we have to see what he has done in the past. He was party uh, chief in Shanghai uh, in the time of the harshest lockdown in uh, Shanghai. So he did not use his good relation to Xi Jinping to tell him, oh, this is uh, too much. Uh, this will cause a big, big problems for the people and big problems for the economy. He did not do this, but he followed 100% the line of Xi Jinping. So, so far, I would say there is no sign that he would do something independent from uh, Xi Jinping, quite opposite. He will uh, follow him in everything from what we have seen so far. So, Adrian, surrounded now as he is by loyalists, is she going to get the kind of fearless and, and frank advice that a man in his position would surely need? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's the point. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping has surrounded himself now with yes-sayers. And uh, the problem is uh, also with the cult of personality around Xi Jinping in China, that it's uh, very difficult for anybody in the party to stand up against him because, I mean, he is in the party constitution, he is in the constitution of the country, he is shown in the propaganda as the savior of China. So that would be very difficult for the party to explain if they would change something. So uh, I think for the time being, Xi Jinping is uh, very much in power and surrounded by loyalists. Shirley, uh, Xi's reappointment as head of state then comes uh, at a particularly sensitive time for China's relations with, with the world. What are we to make of uh, Xi's explicit criticism of the US this week uh, uh, as the leader of a, of a Western effort to contain China, he was saying? So President uh, Xi has openly talked about uh, a all-out uh, US effort to contain encircle and suppress China. And I think uh, this is the first time we heard a deliberate and uh, with succinct clarity, a Chinese vision 
of uh, the current uh, U.S.-China relations. And I think uh, from the Chinese perspective, there is a fundamental miscalculation and misunderstanding between the U.S. and China about uh, the, uh, the strategic uh, rivalry uh, between the world's two largest economy today. The U.S. has uh, talked about uh, sanctioning Chinese technology, banning Chinese investments, uh, et cetera. It's essentially uh, out of uh, national security reasons. But uh, that understanding of national security is also preemptive. In other words, a Chinese company, a technology company, doesn't have to necessarily impose an ongoing uh, national security threat to the U United States in order uh, to, to justify that. The, the U.S. believes that any Chinese company, uh, either state or private, can pose a national security threat at the command of the Chinese Communist Party. So that uh, understanding of national security threat is categorical. But on the Chinese side, the Chinese outrightly rejects that whole notion. Uh, China believes that, the, uh, according to uh, the new Chinese foreign minister, Qin Gang, he, he recently stated that it's not about competition that motivates all U.S.'s uh, China policies today. It is about victory. It's winning the competition that motivates all uh, China policies. And so um, from Chinese perspective, this competition, as long as China continues to rise and continues to uh, come to economic parity with the United States, this containment, uh, encirclement, and the suppression of China, according to President Xi himself, is uh, inevitable. Talking about winning the competition, Shirley, to what extent does that uh, extend to diplomacy. Iran and Saudi Arabia have announced that they're resuming diplomatic relations and embassies uh, after talks held in Beijing. Uh, what are we to make of that? To, to what extent is that a slap in the face for the US? I think uh, outside of the United States, 80% uh, of the world, uh, mostly the global south today, uh, do not wish to enter into this uh, global uh, geopolitical divide. And so the fundamental uh, global understanding of the north-south divide, which uh, we as economists have been so accustomed to in the past decades, that's passe. Today, the fundamental global divide is really the east and west divide. And unfortunately, um, global countries are, are being forced that once, you know, the, the, the proposition, the value proposition is that you either stay with democracy or you support autocracy and you either uh, you know, uh, work with the U.S. technology or um, you work with the Chinese technology. So when these choices become so moral and so mutually exclusive, unfortunately, all uh, developing worlds, all the other 80% of the global world are entangled in this uh, geopolitical strife. But there are wise leaders out there. And I would say if we look at countries like Singapore, um, that's absolutely uh, an amazing model of uh, strategic autonomy. And I think, uh, um, you know, a lot of uh, European countries are trying to uh, perform a role of uh, a mediating role uh, within uh, this uh, global greater architecture as well. And countries in the Middle East are obviously uh, seeking their strategic interests. Andy, what are your thoughts on that then? The fact that these talks were brokered by uh, by China with the help of Oman and Kuwait, of course, who, who hosted uh, preliminary talks, but, but the deal was signed there in Beijing. Well, I think certainly China is playing a much more important role on the global stage. But I want to briefly, if I may, go back to this earlier point about uh, Xi Jinping surrounding himself with quote-unquote loyalists. 
Um, I want to say that briefly, first of all, uh, I think no leader of a large, complex organization, especially a country as challenging as China, can rise up through the ranks to the uh, apex of political leadership without accurate information and sound judgment. And I think these people are loyalists, of course, not because not only that they've demonstrated their loyalty to Xi, but they've also demonstrated their competence as well. And I think that sometimes is underappreciated in some of the uh, the narrative uh, in the West about this. The second point I think it's important to mention that's related to China's diplomatic efforts is that even though Xi is seen as uh, a very powerful leader, uh, one of the hallmarks of the Chinese system is uh, no decision without debate and no debate after decisions. So I think the optics, of course, it looks like C is uh, in charge making all the decisions. But I think a lot of thought, a lot of debate does go into especially important decisions. And as a result of that, we've seen, I think, a very good track record uh, over the last uh, 10 years, over the last decades of economic reform, where China largely has made the right decisions and implemented them effectively. And increasingly, it's taking that competence and that uh, ability to have an impact on the global stage. Andy, I'll come back to you in just a moment, but I just want to get Adrian's thoughts on, on what you were saying there and, and Adrian, on, on this, this deal signed in Beijing to normalise uh, relations between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, that shows the, the growing uh, power of, uh, of China in the world. And I also would agree, of course, not, these people are not uh, incompetent. They are no, no, no idiots. They select, select good people. But uh, still, the point is that um, the atmosphere we have now in uh, China, because uh, now, uh, I mean, it was a big lesson of the Mao time uh, when reform and opening up was uh, started to say the power should not be concentrated in the hand of one person. And that's also why one person should be maximum 10 years uh, in power. And uh, so we have seen now at the 20th Party Congress and now uh, today at the National People's Congress that uh, uh, Xi Jinping continues in power. And that creates an atmosphere uh, which makes it uh, difficult to uh, discuss with him uh, controversial uh, topics because everybody has to be afraid like to 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 become a victim of the of the anti-corruption campaign which as we know is not only an anti-corruption campaign but only a campaign uh, a campaign against everybody who does not agree to Xi Jinping and to the point that they always have wise decisions i mean they had this in general in the last decades yes but this was more also related to the opening up and reform uh, which Deng Xiaoping started but if we Look at the very last years. I wouldn't say that the zero COVID policy, uh, how it was implemented in China, was a wise decision. I think it was terrible for the economy and terrible for the Chinese people. Uh, Andy, back to you. Russia's President Vladimir Putin congratulated uh, Xi, uh, hailing his personal contribution to strengthening the two countries' comprehensive partnership and looking forward to further fruitful Russian Chinese cooperation. How important is Russia to President uh, Xi right now, given the state especially of the relationship with the US? 
Well, I think Russia is important to China for a number of reasons. Uh, like countries in the Middle East, it's an important supplier of energy. So that is you know, a very, very important uh, factor to consider. Geopolitically, of course, I think uh, Tingang also uh, said something along the lines of, as long as there's turbulence in the world, uh, the Russia-China relationship will be a guarantor of uh, global stability. I might have the words wrong, but I think roughly the intent uh, is that. So, and I think from the Chinese view then, it is that as long as there are problems, uh, threats uh, in the world, uh, that the ability of China and Russia, and perhaps other countries as well, uh, to work together uh, to ensure a prosperous and stable global environment is vital. Shirley, um this rivalry then with the US that, that you talked about, this, this competition, this desire to win the competition, how much is that rivalry hurting uh, China's economy right now? Is President Xi actually interested in repairing or at least thawing a little the relationship between China and the US? I think the series of escalations of the U.S. sanctions, particularly on Chinese technology, has uh, made China double down on its efforts and the uh, existing practices. And so this time in the congressional session, you heard uh, Mr. C personally inquiring, uh, 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 private companies, uh, wh where is the chip made in your machinery? And so this uh, whole Chinese uh, domestic uh, economic challenges primarily arise today uh, acutely from the financial sector in the technology sector. And of course, uh, China has uh, restructured, as Andy has alluded to, this uh, whole new uh, state-led uh, whole-of-government architecture in order to seek technological self-reliance. But today, technology and the, the capital market, the uh, financial sector, goes hand-in-hand. Hand. And so we saw recent uh, very uh, aggressive uh, investigations, uh, anti-corruption investigations in the financial services sector, but also China just recently implemented the nationwide uh, uh, registration-based IPO system. And so once that system is in place, which is very much um, uh, akin to uh, NASDAQ uh, or US kind of uh, capital markets, then the Chinese rising technology companies will be able to seek financing from the domestic stock market in order to finance its sustainable rights. And so this uh, finance and technology rights goes hand in hand. And he's not in hope at any day, I don't think, uh, that Mr. C will wake up and say uh, the US would start to supply us chips again. Why, why though, is, is she extending his oversight, his personal oversight of the financial sector and the tech industry? He's replaced China's banking watchdog and he's set up this new agency this 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 um, uh, also the, the the science commission that he's that he's begun as well why uh, Mr. C had set up many uh, special uh, ex-executive committees to oversee various uh, strategic sectors within the Chinese economy. And that you may call, it's part of uh, this whole uh, Chinese structural transition of power from uh, the government to the, to the party. And essentially uh, back to uh, Mr. C himself. And I think uh, that trend uh, is going to continue. And now uh, the supervisory uh, financial committee um, that's newly set up. It's going to replace the existing functions from China's uh, banking watchdog 
and the insurance watchdog and the, some of the other functionaries uh, within uh, across different ministries. And so that sort of restructuring is actually a helpful sign because when you have a lot of uh, government entities that have uh, uh, cross uh, functions of each other's and then uh, there are various regulators regulating essentially the same thing that doesn't bring uh, e efficiency in terms of governance or transparency. And so now the new uh, entity is likely to resolve some of that. Adrian, let's let's discuss China's relations with the EU at the moment, where, as we said at the beginning of the program, tension persists over China's stance on, on Russia and Ukraine. To, to what extent is, is the EU seen as just a puppet of the US uh, in China? Yeah, that's a kind of contradiction, because on the one hand, uh, China tries to divide uh, the EU and the US, I mean, we have just uh, seen this at the uh, Munich Security Conference, where the, um, China uh, attacked the United States and said uh, Europe should be more, more independent and uh, should be more in the middle between the two sides and uh, not together with uh, the US. But on the other hand, in the context of the Ukraine war, I mean, uh, China sees the Europe very much, of course, uh, in one front with the U.S. And uh, that uh, brings me back to your earlier question. I mean, I had been a correspondent in, in, in Moscow also in the time 1990 until 1996, so the end of the Soviet Union and start of the new Russia. And uh, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping are united because they have the same world view. They both think that they had been uh, humiliated uh, by the West, um, especially United States, but in generally by, by the uh, Western world, as they see it. Uh, Putin brings this together with the breakdown, uh, fall down of the Soviet Union, which is kind of uh, ridiculous because I witnessed the fall down of the Soviet Union and this was because of the internal problems of the Soviet Union and the other socialist countries, not because of uh, any foreign interference uh, primarily. And uh, Xi Jinping, as we know, sees it even in the much uh, bigger uh, context, the uh, colonial time and the humiliation of China in that time and uh, uh, wants to make uh, China a big power again, which is a fair aim uh, to make China in the most time of its history had been an important country culturally, economically and, and so on. So it's a, it's a, uh, fair to to go back to this uh, idea to make uh, China a great country, but I think that uh, okay. uh, confrontation uh, for, for both sides is not helpful to develop this. Andy, what's President Xi's standing with the Chinese public? His reputation did suffer, at least with some sections of, of Chinese society, after zero COVID, and then there was the, the rushed abandonment of, of zero COVID, there's the property crisis, the the tech crackdown, there's high youth unemployment. Is he admired by the public, respected, um, liked by the Chinese public? Does it even matter? Well, I think it certainly matters. Um, no country, no regime can survive without public support. Um, punitive measures only work to a limited point and provoke backlashes eventually. Um, so, and I would be uh, careful maybe to distinguish. Uh, there certainly was a lot of dissatisfaction, concern, anxiety, even anger uh, during the COVID lockdown period. Uh, certainly some people 
did not feel the uh, the relaxation measures went well. Uh, but I think overall, there is enormous uh, support uh, for President Xi across all sectors of society, not just Xi, but the uh, the Communist Party as well. Um, I think people recognize too that things can be better. And this is one of the reasons that I think we see uh, the institutional reform going on today as well. Shirley made a great point that overlapping jurisdiction is inefficient. Uh, it creates cost and burdens for firms in the financial service sector, uh, but it also creates problems in terms of regulatory arbitrage as well, where uh, companies, financial service companies can play off uh, one regulator against another. So I think one of the unique features of the Chinese system is that it is able to engage in some regular, fairly significant mm -hmm. institutional reforms. And I think, you know, many people that have worked okay. in large bureaucracies know just how difficult, if not impossible, I, that can be. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but we're, we're out of time. Uh, many thanks indeed to, to all of you for being with us. Andy Mock, Shirley Yu and Adrian Geigas. And that's it. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Abdurrahman Selik, Michael Harwood and Harry Fawcett. Studio sound was by Sasha Andreevich. The programme was edited by Mohamed Sohi, Lynn Ngayan and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Monday for our next edition.